Christopher, buddy, you changed things forever. There's no going back. You want to know how he changed comic book film forever? Well, that's what we're here to talk about today. Hi, welcome to another episode of Bomb Squad Movie Night. I am your host and master of ceremony for this evening, Joseph Henry Vrenick, former employee of Top Golf, and today I have with me. I'm not wearing hockey pads! I am the bat. Now that we're all introduced, it's time to fucking introduce this behemoth of a fucking movie that I'm shitting my pants over right now because I'm worried about not doing this movie justice. It's The Dark Fucking Night. One of the most beloved movies ever made, the most beloved comic book movie ever made. But before we get into talking about that, this is a movie that features one of the greatest performances just ever and possibly the greatest performance in a comic book movie ever so i want to hear from you guys because there's been a lot of other really great comic book movie performances over the years so what are some other really fantastic comic book movie performances tim we'll start with you yeah i am gonna go with my boy ron perlman as hellboy you bastard Uh. you took mine (laughs) you did it yeah, Ron, Ron Palmerin is just a fucking incredible actor. I love him and everything he's in. He is my death stroke all day, every day. He's great in Hellboy. He just blends right into the character. Has a lot of fun doing it. He's just a delight to watch. He's also just, as an actor, a cool motherfucker. His response today to the whole, they're prolonging the strike until people start going homeless. He just goes, The motherfucker who said we're going to keep this thing going until people start losing their houses and their apartments. Listen to me, motherfucker. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. Some of it is financial. Some of it is karma. And some of it is just figuring out who the fuck said that and where he fucking lives. There's a lot of ways to lose your house. This dude's a badass. Holy shit. You gotta love him. I also want to do a quick shout out to Jackie Earl Haley as Rorschach in the Watchmen movie. Sort of an understated performance, and I know a lot of people have issues with the depiction of the character in the movie, but it's absolutely a standout for me. So I just wanted to shout that one out. Back to you, Joe. You know, both are really good picks. I would be one of those people that has a bit of a problem with how he's portrayed in the movie, but Jackie Earl Haley fucking brings it. I'm not locked in here with you. You're locked in here with me. But oh, goddamn, yeah. why did you have to fucking pick Hellboy, Ron Perlman? God damn it! I'm sorry, my son. Didn't I kill you already? All right, Austin. I'm hoping that you didn't pick my second option, so let's just get yours out of the way. Let's hear it. I'm betting that the villains from the first two Spider-Man movies do it for a lot of people. Ever since No Way Home came out, everybody's been really keen to talk about how high Willem Dafoe and Alfred Molina set the bar. They both needed to sell that, like, heel turn. It's not my fault, I'm so evil right now, shtick. And I think that that makes them feel like kind of tragic father figures to a lot of people. But in like the modern day, post MCU, post 
first iteration of the DCEU world that we live in, I'd name three characters in sort of ascending order of how much they've impressed me. Number three is Josh Brolin as Thanos. Entirely from Infinity War, not so much from Endgame. He's committing an act of unthinkable destruction, but what's waiting for him at the finish line is this haunting image of his dead daughter. He plays the whole thing very cool, but when his composure breaks, it's always kind of miraculous to watch. When I'm done, half of humanity will still be alive. Yeah. I hope they remember you. Number two is Loki, because he's just pinch-perfect casting. Quality of the various films he's in aside, Hiddleston is simply iconic in the role. He projects a very sexy, engaging kind of energy, and he's consistently able to elevate the scenes that he's in to a place where sometimes they're more memorable than the movies that they're from. She wouldn't want us to fight. Well, she wouldn't exactly be shocked. But at number one, it's Michael Fassbender's younger Magneto, particularly in X-Men First Class. The closest I've ever seen a filmmaker come to capturing my attention the way the pencil trick in The Dark Knight did was that scene of him killing Nazis at that bar in Argentina. Blut und Ehre. Ja, was würden Sie gerne zuerst verlieren? Wir hatten unsere Befehle. Also Blut. This was only two years after Inglorious Bastards came out, so there was a really special place in my heart for a scene where Fassbender speaks three languages and a bunch of Nazis end up dead. He's magnificent in the rest of the film, but that one scene stands miles above most things you encounter in the superhero subgenre. Those are my answers. Back to you, Joe. Those are all fucking incredible picks. I love every single one of those picks, but now it's my time to shine. So I also have a couple of other ones, but I have one definitive answer. I'll run off my honorable mentions. The first two, you got to fucking bring them up at some point. It's Michael Keaton as Batman and Christopher Reeve as Superman. Those two took the most iconic DC characters and then just defined them for like a generation. Why are you here? There must be a reason for you to be here. Yes, I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. My other honorable mention, Wesley Snipes is fucking Blade. Talk about the most fuck you, I'm gonna be cool mm. as fuck the entire time performance. He has like the greatest goddamn one-liners. Even in a movie where he's not even trying, he's cool. Man, Blade Trinity sucked. <laughs> we will not be hearing from the Twitter people who want to say the original Blade movie was bad. Actually, you are wrong. Go back to bed. Be gone. Some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate on Bill. <laughs> but no, my pick, my actual answer, I gotta introduce him this way. He can sing, he can dance, he can host the Oscars, and still play a credible badass. It's Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Oh. Like, Hugh Jackman's always just been an incredible actor. He's always had incredible range. And talk about an actor just clearly fucking owning a role to a point where just when he thought he was out, we pulled him back in because he's in Deadpool 3, which... Why is he in Deadpool 3? It should just be him as Hugh Jackman. They got the comic book costume on it. I don't fucking care. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, Hugh Jackman, that man has owned a role for over two goddamn decades and nobody ever wants to see that role recast. We just want Hugh Jackman. Unfortunately, I think after Deadpool 3, I think he's fucking done, but he should have been done after 2017. Excuse me, I'm Eric Lynch. Tales Xavier. Go fuck yourself. 
honestly, that's just a role that it's just hard to top. I don't think you're ever going to top it. However, that is a role that, as far as comic book movies in general goes, has been dethroned because we got to talk about our boy, Heath Ledger himself. I, I, I dedicated a brief section of aside for us to get one goddamn sentence out about Heath Ledger, because if I don't, it's just going to be the Heath Ledger show. That's all we're going to be talking about. And here we go. So we're going to try and get this out of the way. We got to mention the greatest comic book performance ever. Heath Ledger as the Joker. You guys have one sentence. Make it count. Austin, you go first. He actually partially got the role because Chris Nolan saw his performance in Brokeback Mountain and thought he was fearless. And if I went back to my high school and told the homophobes that part of the reason that Joker exists is because of the gay cowboy movie, their heads would burst into flames. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tim, go. Everybody who has interpreted the Joker as a character as humorless, crazy psycho person after this role uh, is out of their minds because uh, this dude had jokes for days. God damn right he did, which that leads me to my one sentence about Heath Ledger. Heath Ledger's performance is so goddamn good and funny that he takes a really fucking brutal murder like stabbing a guy's face with a pencil and makes it the funniest scene of the goddamn movie. What a performance. What a character. What a movie. The movie that changed everything. The Dark Knight. We're just gonna jump right into it. I'm gonna go over to Austin first. Tell us what you think of one of the greatest movies ever made. I was wrapping up this film last night and I had this heavy feeling wash over me like I was about to cry. Rewatching The Dark Knight made me nostalgic for like the simpler psychological time of being a suburban teenager, but also the promise that it represented 15 years ago. The promise of these like auteur driven superhero films that could be in conversation at awards season. Not just in the VFX department, but stuff like Best Picture and Best Actor. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I think this movie, like Pound for Pound, was the most recently made film that influenced the most people around me while I was growing up. I've seen so many Joker impressions, been in so many rooms where everybody agrees that this is the Citizen Kane of superhero films. There actually is something kind of sad about the ending. Gary Oldman says that we have to chase Batman, and 15 years later, we're still chasing after this film. There are more superhero movies than ever, but we can never seem to top this one. I'm taking a very specific route today with my answer. I'm going to focus on things I noticed this time around during my rewatch. Filed under things that I noticed. First, we've got the film's emotional structure. This movie's first 41 minutes are like the triumphant climax of a totally different movie. Things just keep getting better and better until the moment that the dead Batman jump scare happens. If you were to, like, illustrate it with a line graph, it climbs to a triumphant high early on, ending with the Rico case, then spends the rest of the movie plummeting into hopelessness, (laughs) eventually breaking the bottom of the graph and descending straight to hell. Very cool structure. Whatever doesn't kill you simply makes you... Stranger. Also, some of the scene transitions for this film, like its screenplay structure, is very intelligent. Like Bruce, he tells Harvey that he's throwing him a fundraiser with his high society friends, after which he'll never need another penny, right? Cut immediately to a scene of the mobsters who are all holding a meeting because they've been robbed by the Joker. 
Or like later, Alfred saying that to catch his like Joker analog back in his army days, we had to burn the whole forest down. Immediately caught to Harvey with half of his face charred. Or uh, Alfred in the beginning, warning Bruce about like knowing your limitations, Master Wayne. Then we cut directly to Rachel, shown in person for the first time, foreshadowing the devastating effect that her death would have on Batman. Touches like that just feel really intelligent, while like not being too academic or dense for like normal people to figure them out, you know? What gives you the right? What's the difference between you and me? I'm not wearing hockey pants. And then one last tiny thing that I really appreciated this time around was that obstruction that forces the police convoy carrying Harvey Dent to go underground. It's a fire truck that the Joker's men set on fire. That is a really funny visual gag. I know that, like, slaughter is the best medicine written on the Joker's truck, and the bullet holes in the shape of the smiley face are also hanging around in that scene, but I'd never taken a second to truly appreciate the flaming fire truck joke until now. <laughs> I'm counting myself here so everybody else has adequate time to suck the movie off. If you're keen on production trivia, I have some stuff in general discussion that is going to royally fuck your mind. But to end my general review, The Dark Knight holds up extremely well 15 years later in every respect, except maybe as a political allegory for the war on terror. I have seen it a hundred times and I'm still finding new stuff to like. It is truly the masterpiece by which all other superhero movies are measured. Fuck yeah. Tim, what about you? How are you going to suck this movie off like we all are today? So uh, I want to start with a just brief story. Fans of the channel will know that last year I made a little video with Joe and Tanner where we visited Chicago and most of it is just us at the Tears for Fears concert. But there's a little bit of stuff where we just like did stuff around Chicago. Not in the video was when uh, we were talking about going to the various shooting locations of the Dark Knight. And we were trying to make plans to do this uh, and then we just did it on accident. Because apparently the set of The Dark Knight is just the commute in Chicago. I would just be driving around and just be like, oh no, that's the bridge from the Lamborghini scene. That's the tunnel from the Slaughter's The Best Medicine scene. But most importantly, we flipped off Trump Tower, which is yeah. the final set piece. <laughs> so that's, that was our tour of the Dark Knight set. But my thoughts on the movie, this is one of those movies kind of like The Empire Strikes Back or Akira where everything has been said about it. So I'm just going to play the hits. It's simple. We uh, kill the Batman. <laughs> if it's so simple, why haven't you done it already? If you're good at something, never do it for free. It's a fucking incredible movie. It's a movie that not only has, for better or worse, shaped the way that Batman has been adapted over the last 15 years, but really it's had an impact on basically everything DC has put out in that time. It's had an incredible footprint, and everything that Austin said is uh, rings true. It's a uh, brilliant screenplay. Uh, he actually turned me on to a documentary called uh, The Fire Rises, which kind of talks about how they were approaching each individual film and sort of looking back at how different it was back then because you kind of take it for granted and now that we have all these superhero movies and like there was still a decent bit of superhero movies coming out around that time but it was not like what we have now it was much less saturated and like the degree to which they were taking this project seriously is something that we haven't really ever seen since 
Well, I must say, compared to your usual requests, jumping out of an airplane is pretty straightforward. I did say this in our podcast last year on The Batman. I think that's a better adaptation of Batman, but I think this is a better movie. It's paced so well, too. Like, it's long enough to feel epic, but not too long that you're like, all right, let's pick it up. You're enthralled the entire time. That's basically my two cents. I'll probably have more to say in general discussion, but I'll pass it back to you, Joe. It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You thought we could be decent men in an indecent time! Oh boy, I've been dreading this fucking moment. (laughs) I have been dreading this fucking moment all goddamn year since we put it on the schedule. I might as well kind of just start from the beginning and just kind of talk about just how fucking big this movie was for me and how it came out at quite possibly the most correct time for myself specifically. I was in that little window of time transitioning between elementary school and middle school. Like, I was 12 years old when this movie came out. I was about to be a goddamn teenager. I was no longer a kid, goddammit. And this is the best possible goddamn movie to come out when you're almost 13 and you're starting to get a little bit older. Some men just want to watch the world burn. The hype for this movie was off the goddamn charts for me. Hmm. I played that trailer so many goddamn times over the summer to a point where I'm pretty sure even my grandma can memorize it. <laughs> like, I, I would ask her to just quote the trailer and she'd just be like, where do we begin? Like, that's how fucking hyped I was for it because I really loved Batman Begins and it just looked so goddamn cool. It looked better than literally every other movie coming out that year. It looked better better than the love guru. <laughs> That's the example I throw out. That's a low bar. <laughs> and I thought my jokes were bad. But my thoughts on the actual movie have pretty much stayed the same ever since the year 2008. I fucking love this movie to death. It's not my favorite movie anymore. It used to be my favorite movie, but it's just so fucking good. This movie looks so goddamn beautiful. Like, the grounded seriousness, fine. That's a discussion for some other time. But you know what? I like it when my superhero movies look like Michael Mann's Heat. Because you know what Michael (laughs) Mann's Heat is? A really good fucking movie and a really good-looking movie. With a great ass! With a great ass! (laughs) (laughs) She got a great ass! So if my comic book movie looks like Michael Mann's Heat, I am more than okay with that. (laughs) It was like, we had our one sentence on Heath Ledger. None of the other fucking cast members ever get mentioned outside of Heath Ledger, unfortunately. Specifically, Aaron Eckhart. Yes! Who I think is the heart and soul of this goddamn movie. Carbon fiber, 28 caliber, Maine, China. If you want to kill a public servant, Mr. Maroney, I recommend you buy American. I once heard somebody say that they made an edit where they took out all of the goddamn Harvey Dent stuff and they said it was a better movie, to which I said, you're a fucking liar, you're stupid, you need to go get your head examined because you probably have some really bad cancer that's blocking the smart parts of your brain. How would the climax of the movie work? (laughs) It wouldn't. That's the thing. I genuinely believe that this is the only good Batman movie to have, like, perfectly adapted the 
one bad day storyline, but with a different fucking villain at its center. Jim Gordon's fucking great in it, too. I will always get hyped when that tunnel chase happens. When we were driving around there in Chicago, man, oh, man, I was trying so goddamn hard not to quote the movie. <laughs> we're driving through these lower whackers, and I'm just like, lower fifth will be like turkeys on Thanksgiving down there. <laughs> Even the fucking extras. Say what you want about how fucking cheesy and bad they are, but the extras in this are fucking hilarious. Specifically, no more dead cops! No more dead cops! One of the best running gags that we've ever had in our group chat. One of the funniest extras ever. I love that man to death. There's just so much to fucking love about this movie. It's not about money. It's about sending a message. I'm pretty sure Austin's going to have a lot of really awesome stuff for behind the scenes and general discussion. So we're just going to take a, a brief break. I'm going to calm the fuck down and we're going to we'll, we'll be right back after Mike Engel from Gotham Tonight gets fucking killed by the Joker. <laughs> I'm not wearing hats. And we're back. Uh, so, it's a very fucking scary time in the industry right now. An industry that we all want to be a part of someday. There are actors and writers and even the costume department guild is on strike right now. And they're all out there fighting to make a fair wage and to not have their goddamn work stolen by fucking AI, which needs to be destroyed immediately. And the big fucking business heads fucking suck. And we're actually going to take this moment to shout out a couple of places where you can throw in and help support the strikes, specifically the Entertainment Community Fund. There's the Snack List. Uh, it helps support the Writers Guild, the Groceries for Writers charity. It helps feed the writers that are currently on strike. They need all the help they can get. Go to those funds. We'll have links down in the description below. And now back to our actual like regular ad. Do you like movies? Do you like movies that were made during a writer's strike? Most people didn't. Because you want to know what we fucking got? We got G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra, the worst James Bond movie, Quantum of Solace. And you want to know where you can find art pieces for that? You can find them on MoviePalette.com, baby! While you're doing that, when you go to checkout, type in the code SQUAD15, and you'll get 15% off of your purchase. And now we're off to general discussion. So, who would like to open this one up. The floodgates have been opened. So this is my biggest, craziest trivia fact. And you guys ought to brace yourselves because this is going to piss you off. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. I slid my ticket across the table and I said, sorry guys, I gotta see about it. So this was shot on film and color timed on film because at the time this was made, digital intermediates were not as high resolution as they are today. We're talking like 2K, maybe at best 4K digital intermediates. Whereas like anamorphic film resolution was like 8K equivalent of what they were shooting on. And 15 per IMAX is like fucking 18K or something nuts. So keeping the workflow all done with analog film procedures resulted in a significantly better image quality. And this was a huge deal to Christopher Nolan and his DP, Wally Pfister. So the famous hospital explosion, right? The most famous shot from this whole movie. Chris Corbold's dudes spent three weeks prepping the building. They literally cut it into two chunks like a cake. Everything was going to be in negative, all practical, 18 fucking K resolution shot. 
But some matter of days before filming, some world-class, evil, fucking bastard stole all the windows and metal framing bars out of the top two floors of the building. So Nolan was forced to use CGI to put the windows back on the building in the shot in the movie. That shot got dragged down from 18K native resolution to 4K resolution because some actual demon stole windows from the set of The Dark Knight. I hope he's rotting in hell. I don't even know if he's dead yet, but I hope he's rotting in hell. Is this the dude from Tanner's set? What the fuck? This is the guy who uh, put PCP in, like, the fucking clam chowder on Titanic. He's just a menace. What a fucking bastard. Yeah, sexist Todd should be stopped. That's who it is, that fucker. Uh, I will pose a question for you. We've mentioned before in previous episodes about Gatorade get hype moments, and this movie has quite a lot of them. What would you say is probably the most definitive Gatorade get hyped moment in this entire goddamn movie? It's hard to top the hospital exploding, but I'd say the 18-wheel truck getting fucking flipped on its back. Fucking Batman tackling Harvey before he can shoot the kid. Which some something that I've always kind of appreciated about the movie is um, how his coin flips alternate between heads and tails until the end where he gets two heads in a row because Batman decided to make his own luck. I never noticed that. Joe, what's your Gatorade get hype moment? <laughs> For me, it's that truck. Every time that that happens, I get fucking stoked. I remember we drove past the street where they shot that on. It's also the mm. uh, Commissioner Loeb funeral scene. Do you guys remember seeing this in the theater when Aaron Eckhart's two-face little makeup is revealed? Well, I guess yeah. it's CGI. That was pants-shittingly terrifying and still kind of is. It's the kind of mm. thing where if this was made before the CG was ready, they couldn't have gotten that effect because any makeup artist knows subtractive makeup can't be done. It just can't. Yeah. You need CG for it. So it was so unexpected. It's like the dude's eyeballs all big. It's fucking terrifying. Yeah, I remember my oldest sister was like talking about how Heath Ledger's Joker was scary to her. Uh, and she didn't, I don't think she watched the movie. And when I watched it, I was like, you're not going to like Two-Face. Uh, <laughs> Imagine having to top Heath Ledger's Joker as far as, like, physically being scary. So apparently when Michael Caine, they were filming the party scene, he hadn't seen Heath Ledger's Joker before while he was, like, in character. And apparently when Heath Ledger went up to him, like, during the scene, uh, Michael Caine just froze. Wasn't able to deliver lines. He <laughs> was just like, oh, shit! They did the Home Alone thing. Uh, which we drove past that Home Alone house when we went to Chicago as well. Fun fact. Not as big as it looks in the movie, surprisingly. I'm pretty sure they changed it because uh, people were doing what we were doing. I I'm pretty sure when you watch the, the famous Why So Serious scene, you can pretty much smell the shit coming down Michael Jai White's pants, that whole entire thing. <laughs> Enough from the clown! Da -da 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 -da. Let's not blow this out of proportion. Which, going back to performances and speaking of Michael J. White, I think it was genuinely smart on Christopher Nolan's part to cast, like, a bunch of character actors as the mobsters. All of the mobsters in this movie have a personality to them, and you can identify who it is. Eric, Eric Roberts, Roberts. Father of Emma Roberts. Man's been in more movies than fucking James Hong. Almost 800 and counting. From one professional to another. If you're trying to scare somebody, pick a better spot. Michael Jai White's a goddamn hothead. You think you could steal from us and just walk away? Yeah. I'm putting the word out. 
500 grand for this clown dead. The Russian guy's a big goddamn goofball. What's his face that played Shao Kahn in the Mortal Kombat movie recently? Plays it completely stoic and serious. Like, you can tell it's the really good fucking performances because they have individual identities. All right, tale as old as time, right? It's the Christopher Nolan breaking IMAX cameras hour. This tradition started almost immediately. First thing that they filmed for this movie was the bank heist. It was the crew's first time shooting IMAX ever, any of them. Steadicam op Bob Gorlick had the MSM lightweight IMAX camera mounted on his little Steadicam arm vest thingy. And on day two of shooting, The Dark Knight, the arm fell off with the IMAX camera oh, attached oh, to it. No. We have footage. Um, but the actual destruction of an IMAX camera came later when they were filming the South Wacker chase scene. Roll footage, Jamie! But yeah, fucking, like, it was on a, a fucking Lev arm attached to a car, and that thing just gets fucking eviscerated, dudes. That was God. the beginning of Nolan's long history. Back when this was filmed, there were only four IMAX cameras in the world. So <laughs> Nolan destroying one on set was a little bit of a, a fucking big deal. Nolan, you crazy son of a bitch. Take the envelope, get in, open it, it'll tell you where you're headed. Speaking of that bank heist, I guess I'm going to bring it back to that Chicago trip because we did drive past the, well, we were actually within the vicinity of the bank that the Joker robs at the beginning of this movie. It's like right next to Sears Tower. Fun fact that the, the building that those criminals at the beginning, like they have to like grapple from one building to the other. Right next door is a city bank. So the Joker's goons had to break into a bank just to break into another bank, which I find <laughs> hilarious. That sounds like a Joker scheme, though. Let's be real. Ever wonder how they got that bus shot in the beginning of the bus fucking coming in? Oh, dear God, how'd they do it? Get this. It was one of the hardest shots they ever got on the movie. So they used a fake wall inside a building where the windows were lit to make it look like it was outside the building, right? They were filming in this abandoned post office, and they weren't allowed to fuck up the structure because the building was listed. So they got this bus inside the building by cutting it up into little slices and reassembling it after transporting it through like just regular ass like double doors like you find on any old building. Then they attached the bus to a pneumatic piston rig and had a button that slammed the bus through the fake like outside wall thingy. So they had to construct a fake wall that looked like the outside, assemble a bus on the inside of a building and rig it up to fucking, you know, blow through there. <laughs> Jesus oh, yeah. Christ. <laughs> the behind the scenes of this movie are, is fucking insane. You guys know the, the scene where the Batmobile fucking rams the garbage truck from underneath? Right. They actually did that using miniatures at one-third scale by uh, New Deal Studios because the production was not allowed to touch the ceiling of South Wacker where the actual chase was filmed. So that's actually a cut to a miniature shot. Uh, honestly, I'm surprised it's a miniature because I always thought it was CG for some reason. Because I was like, how do you pull that off? But I guess you could pull that off in a miniature. So I want to bring up something that everyone seems to fucking forget about this movie. So everyone knows this as the dark, serious superhero movie. Deadly serious. Like, there's not a quip to be had. Fuck Marvel. It's like one of those movies. Did people fucking forget this movie is actually really goddamn hilarious? You'll be all right without me? 
You can tell me to rush in for apply your own bloody suntan lotion. There's so <laughs> many good jokes, like the thing of Harvey going, uh, any psychotic ex-boyfriends I should be aware of? And uh, just the response, oh, you have no idea. That's a good-ass bit. That scene in the beginning where the guy's trying to figure out who Batman is, and he's got a little wall with, like, Elvis and Bigfoot. <laughs> Half of Alfred and Lucius Fox's lines in this movie are just quips. They're cracking zingers most of this movie. The whole hospital scene. All of it. Yes. <laughs> the one bit that I was laughing at, but I was also, like, cringing in pain at. It's like, from this height, it wouldn't kill me. I'm counting on it. What? And then he <gasps> just drops him. Lands flat on his feet. On the one hand, Jesus fucking Christ, I feel that, but also it's fucking hilarious. So this was like one of the first movies that I guess kind of made me aware that like normal people aren't necessarily aware of what MPAA ratings a movie has. Because like my parents were dead convinced that this was an R-rated movie. And I kept telling them, no, it's PG-13, mom. It's okay. Uh, I was 15 at the time, but it really isn't even that violent. Like there's like three shots of blood in the entire movie. I think there's just a lot of, like, implied violence in this that really gives it that edge. One reason I think it might have felt worse at the time is when we were younger, there were, like, Al-Qaeda videos on the news of live executions. And that was the thing that America had never seen before. So the Joker, like, you know, doing his weird little broadcast was a riff on that. And our parents were probably like, oh, shit, I can't show this to my kids. Like, even my parents were aware that this movie was PG-13, but, like, even they were, like, questioning whether or not I could see it. And this was also the same year that they would not let me see Hellboy 2, for whatever fucking reason. Because it has hell in the title. Ooh. I will say that I did watch all three of these when they came out in theaters, and I do think that Scarecrow is the most that any of these scared me, because I was 12 when that movie came out, and so seeing that on the big screen as a 12-year-old was just, like, in the holy shit. <laughs> Speaking of pants shitting terror, I have one more of these I gotta like force out. So that 18 wheel truck flip, right? They had to practice that a lot. And where they actually practiced it was the bombed out location where the hospital used to be. They blew up a building and then they flipped a giant truck on top of where the building used to be. But the location that Nolan picked to actually film the truck stunt was in the middle of Chicago's banking district. A street where there are a shitload of underground vaults beneath it. You know this because there's manholes signifying where every vault is. So the special effects dudes were sweating bullets because the patch of road where they could actually do the stunt was like super tiny. So fucking, he flipped that 18 wheel truck on top of a bunch of bank vaults, which is fucking nuts. Yeah, I'd be shitting a brick too. So (laughs) let's talk about tension building. This probably has one of the most tense third acts I've ever seen in a movie ever. Because goddamn, once you reach that midpoint and Rachel goddamn dies, all bets are fucking off by that point. Because you don't expect the love interest in a Batman movie to just die. And then one of the protagonists gets half his face burnt off and then becomes the villain. All bets are fucking off by that point. And then the movie just becomes unpredictable. Especially because, like, they even show, like, I'm going to get Rachel, you get hard. And then they just get Harvey. No good fortune for Rachel. The way Rachel dies in this, I feel like Nolan like played that thing again. I think it was Interstellar when Matt Damon dies. Because uh, he does this thing where they're like in the middle of a word and then they get fucking owned to death. 
It's a funny thing to do. I love that they included like seven frames of just fucking uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal getting owned by just an explosion. It's all right. Listen. Somebody we, we mentioned this in an unreleased episode that I will hopefully have finished here very fucking soon, but the way that this movie just builds up the tension by that point, by the time you get to the goddamn fairies, you're pretty convinced that somebody's gonna pull that goddamn trigger. It's a beautiful moment when that convict is like, I'm gonna do what you should have done ten minutes ago, and just tosses the fucking detonator mm. out of the window. And I think post-war on terror America needed a scene where it's like, yeah, we're not all gonna to eat each other alive because there's chaos in the world. Something that I said last night when me and Cody were watching it is, uh, the most unrealistic thing about this movie is that that straight-laced Republican dude wouldn't just pull the trigger. <laughs> <laughs> if it were 2023, that motherfucker would have done it yesterday. The Joker would have legitimately fucking won by that point. Ah, <laughs> oh, God. You mentioned the convict throwing the detonator out of the window. It's one of the many cameos in this movie. Is it Tommy Lister Jr.? Yeah, Tommy Lister Jr., the guy from Friday, and he's the president in The Fifth Element. Mr. I know guys who've been on crack that make more sense than you from Austin Powers. But yeah, he's in it. William Fickner is in the beginning of this movie for like two minutes. You have any idea who you're stealing from? You and your friends are dead! He's out, right? I forget that senator's name, but he's the we're not intimidated by thugs guy. That guy is like a real life senator, and he's such a big fan of Batman that he's pretty much been in almost every single Batman movie ever made. Speaking of uh, being fans of Batman, uh, if you watch Nolan's early filmography, if you watch his first film following, <laughs> at one point you can see a Batman logo on somebody's door. It was preordained. Yeah. <laughs> Everything's planned with Christopher Nolan, he's playing 4D chess. Man, Christopher Nolan is such a based goddamn filmmaker, because it's like you think for a man that makes such deadly serious goddamn movies, like, he would just have deadly serious interest and takes in movies, and then he goes and he's just like, oh yeah, Roderick rules. He's referencing Diary of a Wimpy Kid. He loves the Fast and Furious movies. He's apparently a Michael Bay fan. He loves his fucking schlock, and you know what? More fucking power to him. I love Love him for that. <laughs> well, like when Tenet came out and I saw it, my first thought was that he watched that episode of South Park where they parodied Inception and just said, "Yeah, what about it?" <laughs> <laughs> One last piece of uh, anti Hong Kong propaganda. So they actually figured out how to do the building jump, the sort of Batman jumping between buildings practically by attaching a bungee cord to a fucking helicopter. But Hong Kong wouldn't give them an affordable permit to do a helicopter stunt. In Hong Kong. So they had to do it on green screen, right? With like an IMAX plate. But, fun fact, for the stuntman, for the green screen jump, it was still an 120 foot drop. So, even when he's doing just special effects, he's fucking nuts. Chris Nolan God. goes into the paint. Mm -hmm. we, we love you, Chris. We love you. You're fucking nuts. All right. I think this is a perfect time to get into our final thoughts on this movie. Tim, we'll start with you. This movie's not wearing hockey pads. <laughs> Perfect. W would you say that this movie's good? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Respect! We're not playing into a gimmick. We're subverting expectations. I love it. Austin, final thoughts. Movie good! Wait, wait, wait. Hell yeah. <laughs> we got the first Austin movie good. 
Okay, as someone who's also into visual fidelity, right? And this does not get said enough, I am so grateful that this film popularized Hollywood directors shooting on IMAX cameras. This was the one. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've heard that Killian Murphy hangs dong in Oppenheimer, and I've never <laughs> seen a 60-foot-tall projection of a penis before. I love Batman <laughs> Damned. Thank you, Christopher Nolan, for making blockbusters strive to look better and be better. Austin out. Okay, so my final thoughts. Yeah, I love this movie. I've, I've always loved it. I will probably always love it. If the Batman is the perfect Batman adaptation and the perfect Batman movie, The Dark Knight is just a perfect fucking movie. It ticks off so many boxes. You could nitpick this movie's logic all you fucking want, but if you do, you're a fucking asshole. I'm just gonna say it. You should be ashamed of yourself. Enjoy what you fucking have, because you know what we have right here? A really good fucking movie. But, you wanna know who's not a nitpicking asshole on Twitter? Who? You! <laughs> the person watching slash listening to this video, uh, thank you oh so very much for watching. Let us know what you thought of this episode down in the comment section below. What do you think of The Dark Knight? Is Heath Ledger the best thing since sliced bread? Would this movie work better without Harvey Dent? Comment below and let us know the asshole that you are. And while you're also down there, hit the like button so we know how much you like us. Hit that subscribe button so we know how much you love us and hit that bell icon to get updates on when we upload new videos check us out on our patreon check us out on twitch tim's been doing a lot of sonic streams i'll be playing sonic i'm gonna be playing some goddamn silent hill 2 again here soon check us out on facebook twitter instagram grinder i'm pretty sure tanner set up a grinder somewhere for this fucking podcast this podcast fucks yeah this podcast fucks tune in next week for a podcast that i won't be on we're talking about mission impossible dead reckoning part one i'm pretty sure it'll be a fun podcast though i hope you all enjoy it if you do see it but until then i don't know when i'm gonna see you guys next so i'll see you guys later have a good night Fuck Batman. No more dead cops! Yeah! Yeah!